0: Well, here we are back in a normal surge setting once again, the roller coaster of summer. It's like we're gone for like a couple weeks, then we're back for like a week, then we're gone again, then we're back, and here we are for the next three weeks, four weeks. Who's excited to be back down here on a regular basis? I know I am. Well, if you remember way back... uh, before NAYC, we were in James chapter 3. And James chapter 3 opens up with a, uh, a call to teachers. And uh, we are instructed to not let many of us become teachers because they will receive a stricter judgment. But then we go on through James chapter 3 and we learn about this very crucial part of our body. Can anyone tell me what that is? The tongue. The tongue. We learn about the tongue and we learn about how it's such a small member, but it can kindle an entire forest with fire. We know that it's set on fire by hell is the words that James uses. It's full of iniquity and it can control your whole body. And there's a very uh, key illustration that he used and he talked about how in the same way that you put a bit in a horse's mouth and can control the entire horse, you can control the entire course of your life if you can control your tongue. And so we know that that's a very crucial part of our Christian example and our Christian lifestyles, especially inside of the church and outside of the church um, as well. And then as we continue on through James chapter 3, we come to the crucial point where James begins to address our actions. How many of us know in here that our actions can speak louder than our words, right? We may say something um, and not follow through with it, but we might follow through with something that we necessarily wouldn't have said. And it can prove a little bit more about our heart and who we are. And we talked about Christian maturity and how you can tell by your actions uh, how mature you are as a Christian. And we are continuing into chapter four tonight off of that uh, foundation. And James is going to continue to challenge us um, in regards to our, our faith. This whole book really is about true, genuine Faith. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. It says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now, I'm taking such a big chunk because my plan is to have this all wrapped up within the next three weeks. And on the fourth week, Hunter Kale is going to be up here speaking. So we are excited about that. Come on, more can be excited for after. Come on, guys. You love Hunter. Seriously. You guys are just like, hmm, yeah. We're excited for Hunter to come up here in a few weeks from now. So with that, let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for this night. Thank you for bringing us all back here together in one place and in one accord. Thank you for keeping us all safe and healthy and watching over us. And God, we we know that you are watching over us over the next few moments. We know that you have had this night planned out for a long time and you are... You are planning to do something in the lives of every single person in this house tonight. And Lord, we just surrender and submit to your will in Jesus name. Amen. So let's get started with James chapter four, verse one. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? James is opening this chapter with a very crucial question. He's asking us about the content of our inner being. That's what he's he's talking about. Where do these wars come from among you? Do they not come from your members? Do they not come from inside of you? Or your desires for pleasure? The KJV uses the term lust there instead of desires for pleasure, which is an intense, passionate desire. Well, let's answer that question, shall we? Genesis 6 and 5 says... The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And when we look at Psalm 51 and 5, this is King David's famous prayer of repentance. He considered his sinfulness as a man by making this statement. And he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin, my mother conceived me. So David is so in tune with his sinful nature that he's saying, even in my mother's womb, I had a sinful nature. 1 John 2.16 says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. So where do fights and wars come from among us? They certainly do come from our desires for pleasure that war within our bodies. Because deep within our bodies, the body of of man, is a helpless, hopeless, sinful nature. Verse 2, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Let's look at that word lust for a moment. It's a focused passion, this particular term here. A focused passion, it's very direct, it's deliberate, it's intentional. You greatly desire to have or to do something, and there is literally nothing that you will allow to stand in your way to get it. You've got to have it. You've got to get after it no matter what. You're so passionate about your fleshly desires that you are literally willing to fight and war over it, and if pushed far enough, you might even be willing to take a life. For it. Now, I know that nobody in here, as far as we know, would ever desire to do that. But, I mean, there are lots of people and lots of cases out there where people have died because somebody had motive to kill that person. And where do you think that motive came from? It came from desire. It came from a desire for something. So we know that that certainly can happen. Passion and pride can certainly be a powerful motivator it can be a powerful motivator he goes on to say yet you do not have because you do not ask and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures what james is saying here you don't even ask for anything but even if you did you would never receive anything because deep within your soul the only reason why you're asking is for your own pleasure you're asking for the wrong reasons you're asking for things so you can gratify the desires of your flesh and it's all a self-centered and a self-seeking prideful desire we know from james three sixteen. it says where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there When you're operating with this level of selfishness, you're opening up an entire world of evil and confusion. And we know that God is not the author of confusion. So essentially what you are preparing for yourself or what you are building for yourself is literally like a godless world. It's your own little world where you are completely separated from God. You don't even think about them. You don't even consider it. You are just so hyper-focused on yourself, on your desires, on your passions, that God is completely out of it. I want to look at that term there that James uses, where he says that you may spend it on your pleasures, that term that you may spend it. There's another similar phrase used in the parable of the prodigal son. In Luke 15. It's actually the same Greek word, even though it's translated a little bit differently to fit the context, but it's the same Greek word that's behind it. So let's read that Luke 15, 11 through 16. It says, then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood or his inheritance. And not many days after The younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now verse 14, here it is. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed the swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate and no one gave him anything. So here we have a young man who's who's very selfishly asking for his inheritance from his father before his father is even dead. Does anybody realize how offensive that is? Like, hey, I know you're not dead, but I want all your money now, please. So he asks for that and. And he goes out and he just completely blew it all on prodigal living, blew it all on. It's it's like riotous living. You're just living it up, spending all the money you possibly can spend. You're not focused on anything else. And that term prodigal living is extravagantly wasteful. It's like winning the lottery and completely going broke within a year. You get $15 million, let's say, and by the end of the year, you just wiped it all out. That's essentially what this kid did. He had no self-control, he had no discipline, and absolutely no level of maturity. He pulled himself out of submission to his father, and where did it get him? His passionate, worldly lifestyle left him broke and hungry in the middle of a famine, eating with pigs. Imagine that for a moment. Eating with pigs. He's literally eating the food that the pigs ate. We know that sin satisfies for a season, but sin will always take you much further than you ever expected, and it will leave you high and dry. It will never completely bring fulfillment to your life, just like this prodigal son. And so he lived it up. He spent it all. We just like we waste everything on this world, waste our time, our efforts and our energy instead of focusing it on God, we take it and we just blow it all on everything that this world has to offer. We waste our lifestyle on our pleasures. Now, that word pleasures, it's very interesting, okay? It's used in verses 1 and 3, and it's the same exact word that's being used. It comes from the word hedone. Hedone. It means satisfaction of physical appetite. It's a very, very negative term in the Greek. Basically, you are willing to indulge yourself at the expense of your own body you have no care for anything even of yourself not for people around you not for yourself and it's actually where we get the word hedonism hedonism in our language today has anyone ever heard of the word hedonism or a hedonist okay one person wonderful that could that should be a good thing it means that you are engaged in the pursuit of pleasure it's it's it could be it could be used to describe addiction right People are willing to chase after their addiction to alcohol or to drugs or or various other things, even though they're very harmful to your body, yet you still have this just deep desire and hunger and thirst for those things, and you're willing to do anything to get it. You're willing to do anything to get it. I thought of this example when it comes to how James is describing this and how people are literally feasting on their pleasures getting whatever they want feeding whatever desire they have my cousins used to breed doberman pinchers and so they had like these beasts walking around their house and as a young man i was petrified of doberman pinchers they just looked scary and i can remember very vividly like they would just feed their dogs anything and i remember he had like this whole like double like cheeseburger like on the counter and he just flat out handed it to his dog. And you just see those teeth just glistening in the light and there's just drool and saliva going all over the floor and the dog is just hacking away, chomping away and in like four bites, just completely consumes this hamburger. That's what I think of when I read this. It's like, you're just, you're just relentless. You don't care who's around, who's looking, what's going on. You're just chomping at anything you can get your hands on. And I think we do the same thing with media. And with various things like that, we've got to be very careful. That cheeseburger may not have necessarily been bad for that dog. But, I mean, just that relentless chomping pursuit, trying to get your hands on any, anything you possibly can, any video game, any book, any magazine, any website, any social media site. We just sit there and we're chomping at the bit to get these things. And it's like we're never satisfied with it and it just dominates and controls all of our time. That term pleasure is actually used in Luke 8.14, which is where we find the parable of the sower. Luke 8.14, Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Think about that. When you're willing to, when, you're willful, when you willfully decide to live life focused strictly on your own desire for pleasure, it will never, never, ever matter where, when or how much seed or word of God is cast into your life. It will always be choked out, it will never take root, and you're just going to continue to lack maturity in your life. Doesn't matter doesn't matter how many Sundays, Wednesdays, or rallies you're at. The Word of God is always getting choked out by all the time that is being consumed with anything but God. And as a result, you're going to be a fruitless Christian. You'll be a fruitless Christian. You have no roots to even grow, let alone bear any fruit. John 15 and 5, I am the vine. This is Jesus talking here, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Everybody say that word, nothing. That's a universal negative. That means without him, you literally can do nothing. You are 100% helpless and hopeless without Jesus. And he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. If you will commit to weeding out the thorns of your heart and of your flesh. Then the word of God can fall on good soil and you will no longer be asking with the wrong intentions, spending it on the wrong things. But instead, when you ask of him, it will be done for you. He will give you what you need and you will bear much fruit. Otherwise, it's really as simple as this. No fruit, no disciple. No disciple means no eternal life. No eternal life means no heaven. And no heaven means we're in hell. It's as simple as that. It's literally as simple as that. We're like that withered branch that was collected and scooped up off the ground and just tossed into a fire. How quickly does a little branch that you just toss into a fire get consumed? It's just gone. Now I know these are, probably you're thinking a little bit, wow, this is harsh. You've got like the cannon out tonight. I mean, if you read your New Testament, Jesus thought about hell a lot. So we can't be afraid to talk about this because this is literally what it boils down to. It's heaven or hell issues. Your time is a heaven or hell issue. Period. End of story. And we sit here and sacrifice our time on the altars of the world rather than on God's altar. That's the hard truth. What we can see here from verse 4 is that living for your own pleasures will cause you to become disjointed from God. Let's read that. Verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want to remind you that James was a very devout Jewish man. Okay? He was very devout, very well versed, and... He, he really struggled to believe in Jesus because Jesus is teaching everything that is completely opposite to what James has been raised to understand about the Old Testament. And he was a very tough egg to crack. If you remember, he grew up in the same house as Jesus. We talked about that, that it would have been very hard growing up with a half-older brother who was literally perfect. Remember? Never got spanked. Never got grounded. Everything was wonderful, knew everything. And here you are, James, probably feeling like you're being overshadowed. And so as a result of that, it took till after the resurrection of Jesus for James to actually trust and believe his older brother. And so James is a very devout Jew speaking to the 12 Jewish churches that were scattered abroad. And he's pulling a precise term from the Old Testament to make a point. He's using the word adulteresses. This is a word you will find absolutely littered everywhere in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's always spoken of by the prophets. God is always referring to Israel as an adulterous nation because over and over and over again, they are constantly turning their back on God. One moment, they're on God's side of the fence. The next moment, they hop the fence over to the pagan side, and now they're worshiping false gods, dressing the way they dress, acting the way they act. And then God is sitting there, Hey, you're like an adulteress. You're, it's like you're chasing, you're chasing a different man other than me. Imagine how that would feel to God. That's not a fun situation to be in. And so he's using that term to try to get their attention because these, these, these are pro- predominantly Jewish churches and Jewish people. He's saying, okay, I'm going to use a term you're familiar with because your faith doesn't really seem all that real. So he's calling him out. He's like, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so this wavering with the Jewish people, it sounds a lot like the double-minded man, does it not? From James chapter 1. The double-minded man who can never make up his mind. He's unstable in all of his ways. He's like the waves of the, the sea is how it's described. No matter which direction the wind is blowing, the waves just go with the flow. They're controlled by the winds of culture and the winds of this world and and the winds of other people's um, doctrine and, 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 and their belief systems. And he just wavers back and forth. There's no solid rock. There's no foundation to build his home on. And so his home just gets wiped out the minute that anything bad comes his way. And as a result of this kind of thinking... James is saying you're a friend of the world. And when you're a friend of the world, it makes you an enemy of God. Now that word, the word enmity that he uses here and enemy, they both come from the same word. Enmity or hostility towards God. Enmity comes from the root word for enemy that means deep-seated hatred. Think about that for a moment. If you're a friend of the world then you have deep-seated hatred for God. It's a very personal hatred. And in its definition, it actually says that it's a hatred that is basically unable to be resolved. It's It's a hatred that's almost unable to be repented of. That's how strong that word is. And as a result, you have set yourself up as God's opponent. You're willfully taking a stance on the opposite side of the battlefield of God. Let me know how that works out. How do you think it'll work out? Not very good. I think we all can attest to something that that maybe we've kind of taken a stance against God before. And we've been a little bit rebellious and we haven't necessarily listened to what he's wanted us to do. And it never works out right. Never works out. I'll be the first one to admit that. Don't go against God, period. Just submit to him. And so you're either a friend of God or you're a friend of this world. You either love God or you love this world. You either indulge yourself in a relationship with God or you just stuff your face with all the worldliness that one can possibly handle. Acts two thirty four through 36. This is Peter wrapping up his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Listen, it does not matter how hard you resist God or how well you fight against him. At the end of the day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. No matter what, if you decide to take the prideful, resisting approach towards God, or if you decide to humble yourself towards God, you're going to have to bow either way. Either way. I would rather bow now in humility than be forced to bow later out of pride. Because it doesn't end well when you go down that route. Verse 5, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns Jealously. Now, I have to admit, and Swire can attest to this, that I was really struggling with this verse. And maybe for some of you in here, it's as plain as day. But I'm just being honest with you. I was really struggling with this verse. When you take this verse and you look at it through various Bible translations, you can tell that scholars really struggle with this verse as well. The word order is all different. In some of the translations, they capitalize the S, and others they put it lowercase, and they flip things around and mix them up. And quite frankly, it'll make your head spin going down that rabbit trail. So this one's kind of for all the Bible nerds out there. Okay, I'm, I'm speaking Bible nerdy in right now. Um, so I was really, I was really trying to figure out, you know, what route to take on it. Now, honestly. You can't take like a super stiff, hard stance on it. Because you really can't go wrong whichever way you go. You really can't go wrong. You're not going to land in some crazy, outlandish area. But regardless of that, I do believe that I have the answer. And so with that, I'm just going to say it confidently, and we're going to roll with it. Um, And quite frankly, I think the KJV got this one right, big time. Okay, so let's read it. Let's read it in the NKJV for a second. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the Spirit, capital S, who dwells in us yearns jealously. So this verse, according to the NKJV translators, is speaking to God's Spirit yearning jealously within you. After all, the Bible does say that God is a jealous God. In Exodus 34 and 14, he says, my name is jealous, but... That word is not used the same way as this word. And so, quite frankly, I do not think that it is talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Because the KJV says that the spirit that dwelleth in us, lowercase s, spirit, lusteth to envy. Or the spirit that dwells in us lusts to envy. It's very passionate and envious. And I think that that's the correct way. I think that it's talking about the spirit of man. I don't think it's talking about God's spirit that is in you. I think it's talking about the natural spirit that we all have living inside of us that is absent of God's spirit. Here's why. First of all, the word used for jealousy here occurs nine times in the New Testament, and this is the only time if it is a capital S, if it is talking about the Holy Spirit, that it would be used in a positive sense of God's spirit. Every other time it has to do with man and his envying. In fact, I think like three of the times it's referring to Jesus being handed over for his crucifixion because of the envying of man. So that has me suspicious. Eight out of the nine times it would have been used in a negative way. Number two, the word has a very strong negative definition. The Old Testament word for, for, for jealous means like zeal or passion. But, but this, this particular word in the New Testament means decay or breakdown or corrupt. The strong feeling of desire due to the influence of sin. Being glad when someone experiences misfortune or pain. Now, you tell me, does that sound like God's spirit? I don't think so. How can the Holy Spirit display these kind of attributes and still be considered holy? That wouldn't make sense. Thirdly, it's the negative context of the passage up to this point. What have have we been hitting home? We're talking about your desires, your, your fleshly desires and passions and things that you chase after. I mean, the whole context of this is is funneling through the the sense of man's spirit, his inner man, and our fallenness. And finally, this powerful statement immediately follows in verse 6, which I think will make the point. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Even though you've been so distracted by your appetite for pleasure, even though your natural spirit desires envy, even though you're so jealous, you're so fleshly, God still gives more grace. Even though you're blind to the condition of your own heart, do you think it says in vain, is what James is saying. Do you think that it, that it means nothing to say that your inner man is corrupt and immoral? He's saying, don't ignore that. Don't ignore the condition or where you're at. Don't ignore your sin. Don't ignore your problems. Don't ignore what you have committed. Bring it to the light because God still gives grace. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, God gives more grace. It's an endless supply of grace. Not to give us permission to sin, but to just simply wipe out all of our sins through genuine repentance therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble resist that's another word for being in opposition to god or in being in opposition it's actually an old military term for organizing soldiers into a specific position or formation you're not just against god but you are literally it's like you're facing an army that has been strategically placed to resist you It's an army that is prepared and ready for battle. So he resists those who focus on the lust of their flesh, the lust of their eyes, and the pride of life. And he's standing in opposition to the self-seeking and immature people who claim to be Christians, but really their faith isn't real. That's exactly what's being addressed here. And while he's pushing back against the proud, he's reaching for the humble. He's extending a hand of mercy to provide grace to anyone who will humbly submit to him. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you resist when you resist the devil, when you submit to God first and then resist the devil, that's the only way you can do that. The only way you can resist the devil is if you submit to God. If you submit to God, that means God's spirit is dwelling inside of you. God's going to fill you with his spirit. You'll speak in tongues. You're going to be full of the spirit, overflowing with the spirit. You now have the ability to resist the devil. Why? Because with that spirit in you, you are now a part of God's army instead of the world's army. You now can stand in resistance and opposition to Satan rather than to God. Verse 8. What do we do with all this tonight? This has been a very heavy message, I admit. But there's really no way around it. It's just that blunt and that straightforward. This is what you can do. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a multiplying force. As you draw near to him, he draws near to you. If you resist him, he's going to resist you. So you push away, he's going to push away too. And you're going to go out away from him faster than you can blink. But if you draw near to him, he draws near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. If you would all stand with me. Once again, James is addressing true Faith versus fake faith. Real Christians versus fake Christians. He's constantly bringing us to this place. And so again tonight, as we are closing here, we need to start to perform some self-examination to determine if we indeed do have genuine faith. No matter who you are or where you're at in life, the answer for us all here tonight is the same. It's humility. And humility is never more real than when it's expressed through genuine repentance. <clears throat> so if you're still on the fence about Jesus tonight, if you, if you can honestly look at your life and say, yep, I've got real faith, I see the fruit of that, and so I just need to continue to remain committed to God. Great. Good for you. But if you say that and you're really lying to yourself, it's time to repent. It's time to get right with God. There is nothing nothing like real humility in repentance. 1 John two sixteen through 17 once again. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This world and its passions are all passing away. They will all be destroyed. But God and his word, his perfect will, it will last forever. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So let's turn back to him tonight. Through humility and repentance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.